Hi, I'm Marnie Mimi Hood. And I'm Russ Levins. We're the hosts of Contributors, a podcast where we explore how Canadian employers are leading change, innovating industries, and investing in our country's well-being and prosperity. These organizations are prospering today by prioritizing more than just the bottom line. And so are we. As leaders at the CAT Pension Plan, we're contributors to one of Canada's fastest growing defined benefit pension plans. We believe in contributing today for a long-term benefit. And we want to showcase other employers who are securing a better future for Canadians. Follow along. Welcome back to Contributors. Today, we're so fortunate to be speaking to Stephen Polos, former governor of the Bank of Canada, about the current state of the Canadian economy and the trends that we should expect over the next decade. Stephen Polos served as the ninth governor of the Bank of Canada from 2013 to 2020, returning after having served at the bank for 14 years there earlier in his career. Prior to leading the bank, he was head of Export Development Canada, where he served for 14 years after joining the EDC as its chief economist. Stephen now acts as an advisor and board member to several leading organizations and is a frequent speaker and writer. He's joining us in contributors to discuss the volatility we're seeing, but more importantly, how Canadian employers can adapt to thrive into the future. Stephen will share his views on demographics, technology, and more. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for being on Contributors. Now, many of our guests will be familiar with you and your background, but some will not. So can you open by sharing a little bit about yourself and your background, as well as your interests? Well, sure. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, I grew up in uh, Oshawa, down near Toronto, uh, the Motor City, and uh, you know, pretty modest background, and uh, had to struggle, work hard, lots of jobs to get to university and through university. Uh, got married in the mid seventies while I was still in university uh, to Valerie, and we're still together, so it's a long time ago, and. Uh, you know, through uh, through time at school, you know, I went down there to Queens to try and become a doctor and uh, and uh, took economics as my option. And next thing you know, I'd fallen in love with economics. And so I never looked back, became an economist, uh, got my doctorate degree down in uh, Western Ontario and then started work at the Bank of Canada. So I've been, uh, you know, a researcher or an economist or a forecaster. Uh, basically all my uh, professional life and moved around a little Bank of Canada, Export Development Canada, Bank bank Credit Analyst, a few groups like that. But um, basically always been a macroeconomist and always uh, interested in what's going on in the world and why. That's great. If you could just take us back before the pandemic hit, how would you describe the state of our economy what were some of the key factors at play, would you say there? How would you say the economy was performing pre-COVID? Pre-COVID, uh, the Canadian economy was it was probably in the best place that it had been for close to 40 years. Uh, we had, for a long time, inflation had been on target or very close to target. And it just so happens just before, uh, just before the pandemic, it was exactly on target. And the unemployment rate was at about a 40-year low. So I've often said that, uh, you know, if, if, if you're going to get sick or 
if the economy is going to get shocked. You, you, if you want to start, start and get shocked by something, it's best to be in the best health you've ever been in. Uh, then you're much more able to shake off uh, whatever is ailing you. And the same is true for the Canadian economy. Um, it was well prepared uh, for a shock like this, uh, at least as prepared as it could be. What would you say is our current economy and business climate here in Canada? Well, I think we're we're at the stage now where uh, we've we've learned pretty well how to how to cope with COVID. I think we all acknowledge that COVID is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, and so we'll still be getting uh, booster shots and you know perhaps wearing masks for some time. We'll have to see how that goes, but the economy has managed to cope with it for the most part. Uh, there's only the uh, sectors that are. Well, close contact sectors that are still struggling, uh, you know, the hotels, the restaurants, the, the bars, the gyms, uh, and anything that uh, requires uh, close contact travel also is still struggling. Uh, but uh, all, all things considered, uh, uh, we've managed through it pretty well. Um, you know, if you look back uh, 18 months ago, economists were advertising, you know, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And that clearly didn't happen. In fact, uh, it was a very modest thing. I mean, a big shock, but the recovery was very quick. So uh, looking ahead, I think we've got those pieces back on track. And what's going to emerge, I think, after the big fluctuation from COVID is a steady but a slower growth rate than people are expecting. And I think a return to uh, to stable inflation. Uh, but the uh, one of the things that people miss in all that is that through this piece, we're getting older. And I don't know if you've noticed that, Russ, but every year we get a year older. And so as it turns out, uh, you know, the, the baby boomers, such as myself, that entered the workforce in the 1970s and 1980s are now exiting the workforce. And this is not just here in Canada. This is a global phenomenon. And so what this means is that the, the workforce in the world, uh, the growth rate that we've seen in that workforce was bumped up by the post-war baby boom. And that gave us stronger economic growth in the world for about 50 years. What people are about to discover is that the 50 years that they've lived through are anomalous. Yeah. That is actually the next phase. We're going back to a more normal state where economic growth is lower. Uh, real interest rates are lower than we've ever experienced in uh, in our adult lifetime. So looking across the Canadian economy right now, what are we doing right? Well, it's, it's an interesting way to pose it. So what are we doing right? Uh, we, are, we are now, I think, embracing uh, new technology. Companies are investing heavily in new technology. The pandemic has certainly speeded up that process. Uh, and that's good because Canada has been a bit of a laggard uh, historically. So I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing on investment. Uh, we are we are one of the most important exporters in the world. We uh, we've become a, a world class business in engineering and high tech uh, IT service provision, both domestically and uh, as an export. And we've become world class in education services, which is a very important ex export. And we're world-class in uh, the agri-food business. 
Uh, also, the forestry business. These are important uh, businesses. Uh, indeed, the energy business, also uh, world-class uh, business. So we're doing a lot of things that are right, and yet around the edges, we seem to be adept at putting little roadblocks in the way uh, that kind of slow us down and mean that for productivity purposes, you know, we really haven't kept up uh, with other countries. And over time, our competitiveness, our ability to perform in a global level is eroding. I saw you speaking about CERB and the idea that CERB was a government program that worked because it was just, it was dead simple. That's correct. Yeah. So red tape, if you had, if you really wanted to design a CERB, uh, you know, from, from scratch and you had lots of time, you would have put in a whole bunch of requirements and, 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 and tests that you needed to pass in order to qualify. And it probably would have required human intervention to judge whether you qualify or not. That's how we would normally design something like that. But given that we had zero time, it was designed all in one week and set up on a computer, you know, by the, by the CRA and wonderfully done. I mean, it was a true, a true uh, advance. And so when you look at the data now, you say, my goodness, why did the Canadian economy not miss a beat? Well, that is the main reason why. Yeah. And our ability to move fast. Whereas in the United States, you know, they were still quibbling months later in Congress about whether they could make a package or not make a package. So, so okay. Um, so, so then afterwards, people say, well, that's just uh, lamentable that some people got served that shouldn't have got served. Well, you know, I understand that that's exactly the cost that you accept in order to be fast about it. So the kinds of restrictions we have, you know, there are, there are differences even between one province and another province when you have a business. That's really helpful. I, I know you've said that there are some key factors or trends that we need to be mindful of. Can you share those with us and how they're impacting our economy today? Sure. Well, one of them is the one I mentioned just now, which is the aging of the population. That's a really important one because it's the one we don't notice, even though we have a birthday every year. But it's, uh, it's as I mentioned before, about how it will sl- it's going to slow economic growth down, and, and people may not understand that, why that is. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to understand that. On the other side of it, as we have a growing stock of elderly folks who may require more medical care or more just elder care, uh, we'll be devoting more societal resources to, to, that, to that segment uh, at a time when governments have already rung up a lot of debt, you know, after the pandemic. So, so there's going to be a big stress on government coming from that source. Uh, second one that's uh, front and center, and we're, we're doing it right now, and that's technology advances. Uh, te- technological advances is, is a persistent feature of every economy for all time. It's usually incremental. But over history, we've had major waves of technological advance that have affected fundamentally how the economy operates, general purpose technologies. We've only had three of those. So that's the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. That was the the steam engine. Uh, The second one was the electrification in the the early 1900s, which gave rise to, uh, you know, general purpose uh, technology went everywhere, as you know. And then the third one was the computer chip starting in the late 70s. And each of those we call industrial revolutions because they're so big and affect everything. 
Well, here we are in the fourth industrial revolution, which is, you know, digitalization and the development of, you know, um, you know, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, like those things all kind of stem out from, from digitalization. And, and so everyone's expecting this to be at least as big and as profound as, as the computer chip revolution. Well, I've studied those revolutions, and uh, there's some pretty important similarities amongst all of them. Uh, when you introduce a new technology, a company has to, that's going to affect everybody, every company has to, uh, has to adopt it, right? Uh, otherwise, they're out of business. Adopting it, what happens is uh, people who work with the old technology lose their jobs. And so what we get is a K-shaped trajectory for the economy during these, these waves of technology, with the top part of the K doing well, the bottom part of the K has those folks that are th thrown down there, that are, that are dislocated by the, by the new technology. So I think we're going to go through roughly, you know, who knows how long, but I'm going to say 10 years for, to make sure you understand it's for a long time, not a, not a short thing. The, the, the big effects from the computer chip uh, industrial revolution accumulated during from 1995 to 2005. And it's in that period where we had what we call jobless recoveries. Okay, so we had the economy growing, but not jobs. And that's the sort of thing I'd expect to see repeated. So this, too, will put a lot of stress on the social safety net, on governments and, and, and you know, how do they take care of all that. Um, my, my contention is that every industrial revolution has created more jobs than it destroyed, but usually they're not the same types of jobs, and that, and that gives rise to this. So, you know, we had the Victorian Depression in the late 1800s. We had the Great Depression in the 30s. We avoided that in the 90s and 2000s uh, through smarter policies. So I'm confident that we can do it again. And these were these are predictable. I mean, it took us until probably 2015 to understand what the computer revolution did in terms of productivity, even in advanced economies such as the United States, where it's, where it's well studied, and Canada. I mean, just understanding that took another 15 or 20 years afterwards for you to see what's, what it actually did. You know, certainly, as Churchill said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What we know is that revolutions are rarely peaceful and that these are periods in history that are fraught with, as you say, uh, political dissent, uh, job loss, um, at the confluence of these other factors that you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the aging population, the demographics, at the same time, it almost seems like a perfect storm of uncertainty. Well, that, that's exactly right. So, uh, and so uncertainty is the key word because, to be honest, even though I know what, if the, if the population gets one year older, I know what sort of consequences that has for the economy. We change our consumption patterns. We change our housing. We, so we can predict those things. And yet when we layer on top of that, this technological shift, and then, and then say to the economy, oh, by the way, at the same time all this is happening, you must transition to a net zero world. It varies, and every country may look different. And that's the uncertainty. So as a company, you just think, well, how am I supposed to behave? when I don't know where I'm headed. I think what we're seeing is as the population ages, 
and the skills shortage continues to grow, uh, the power is shifting to the employee. Just as subtle, it's not some dramatic thing, but I think that's why we're seeing firms stepping up. And uh, we'll see that as a trend uh, as we go forward. I think more and more firms will embrace that. Uh, it's time to uh, you know do a little bit better by employees, uh, especially if I need if I really want to compete and keep them. Uh, that's going to become more and more important as the population ages, and we're going to actually have shortages of the right kind of workers. Immigration can help, of course, right? But but it's but it does, it's not a cure for everything. Let's jump into something new here. Can you tell us how inflation and growth contribute to more uncertainty both at home and abroad? Yeah, you know, the inflation outlook is riskier, but for the more fundamental reasons that we've talked about, not because they went up because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the inflation outlook, uh, it'll, it'll be determined by the central banks. And as usual, uh, central banks in general can at times be shoved around by their government. And governments have a strong incentive to cause more inflation because they've incurred a lot of debt uh, during the pandemic. And that's a faster way to, to pay it down. So I'm not saying that that's the case here or even in the U.S. or any place like this. But the point is that, you know, in some countries it's, it could happen and it's, it seems more likely than in others. Uh, so we need as investors to be on the outlook for inflation risk uh, more than we had to be couple of years ago because of the high higher government debt around the world. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same as saying there's going to be high inflation at all. It's just one of the more one of those bits of uncertainty I would add to the mix. Stephen talked about two distinctive shifts, an aging demographic across Canada and the fourth industrial revolution. As a pension plan, we certainly are attuned to demographic change. As Stephen has said, there are opportunities to seize this moment to secure a better future for Canada. Let's hear more about these shifts and how they'll impact Canadian employers. So going back to those shifts that you talked about, the aging population, uh, the, the fourth industrial revolution with digitalization, what do those things mean for Canadian employers? How should Canadian employers react to those shifts? Well... As an, as an employer, as an employer, you need to be asking yourself, okay, I, I know to compete, I have to deploy this new technology, which, whichever way I can. If, if I don't, my competitor will, and I'll, he'll have my breakfast for me. And so you have that, but then you're thinking, gosh, I've got people in my business that are going to be displaced by this technology. And by the way, I'm going to need to hire some new people that are savvy in that new tech to maintain it or, or, or install it or whatever. And so, uh, and if you start advertising for them, you'll soon discover there aren't any. You know, they're, 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 they're few and far between. Well, in front of you, you have the makings of a solution. You know, you could just throw, throw those people that are displaced by technology out on the street and let them appeal to government programs and retrain themselves, and maybe one of them comes back to you someday. Or you could just say, you know, that's pretty painful. That person's been with me for 12 years. Uh, how about I make it easy for them? And by the way, it'll make it easy for me too, right? Because I don't have to go find somebody. I already got a great person here. Uh, they just don't quite have all the skills I need now. 
And uh, so what you do is you let them learn on the job or you send them off for three months to learn what they have to learn. And so I think what we'll see is more companies doing more of this, even small companies. Uh, obviously, big companies have always done a bit of that. But I think it'll become more standard. Uh, another thing that uh, is going to matter is uh, in order to grow our, our companies and our, our economy, we're going to have to maximize the workforce that we do have. Uh, because it's going to be aging and the growth rate will be slow and it'll only come from immigration, actually, starting in the next couple of years. The net growth in our workforce will only be due to immigration. Okay, so that's a very important ingredient for any business. Well, okay, so you're looking through, you know, uh, new, new, uh, new arrivals to Canada for people with the skill sets you need, which, which is fine. But let's not forget that there are lots of people in Canada who are not participating in the workforce for one reason or another. And let's talk particularly about women. So women participate far less than men still. Uh, well, why is that? Well, the most important constraint, we believe, is childcare. So, uh, you know, that investment in daycare that the governments have started now, uh, that's not just a you know, uh, one of those election promise things. That's got a fundamental driver, like I've just described. And it's why it was covered by all the parties. You know, everybody had one or one version or another. And I, I acknowledge that that's really important, but I don't think it's going to do the whole job. And I think there again, the companies are in a position to uh, not just rely on the government to have uh, daycare programs, but to invent their own types of daycare uh, programs for themselves to help retain more and more scarce people and bring you know women in particular into the workforce uh, to help grow the company. So there's a couple of ideas like the, that I think are going to become more real. And we already talked about the shift in the the, sh the shift in power towards the employee. I think you may as well get in front of that and think about what employees really need. It isn't just more money. Uh, sometimes it is, but you know you can be pretty. You can be pretty, pretty uh, custom. You can customize it, right? You can have well, one comp one comp one person in your company needs daycare. Another one just wants a higher salary. You know, another one needs flex work. You know, they need to be able to go get the kids at three o'clock, or you know. So we have an opportunity here now that we've seen how technology can work for us to re redo the whole work contract. Okay, not just how many days you have week you spend in the office, but to truly customize it um, and uh, therefore boost everybody's productivity and really win, win, win. That's a great point. Being able to accommodate, I think, the needs of today's workforce with that kind of flexibility that employers need, I think, is definitely going to be critical. I liked how you described employers being able to offer essentially retraining and redeployment to workers that may be affected by the digitization, this fourth industrial revolution. What would you say is the next stage essentially for Canadian business leaders on a macro scale? I think the the most important thing I've got in my mind is that we're entering a period where I think people will be expecting things to calm down post-COVID, to be more predictable, 
And I think my main argument is I don't think that's the case. That these things we've talked about here are things that are not just there, they're actually in motion. And they'll have quite hard to predict consequences for the business environment. So it's one thing to fuss over it and get, get your planning team to work on it and get consultants to work on it. Okay, try to figure it out. That's fine. But I think any forecast that somebody works out for their company is almost certainly going to fail to, to turn out. So what is more appropriate is instead to assume you won't know. Pretend you just can't know. That really what you're entering is a foggy future where the uncertainty is higher than you've seen in the past. And how do you prepare the company to be able to manage through that? I'm saying there's other things here that are more fundamental that will do this. And so what Taleb argued was that all companies need to have what he calls a barbell strategy, bearing in mind that volatility can be, usually think of it as bad, because, you know, uncertainty is bad, right? But but fact is, volatility is two-sided. So what happens to the company tomorrow could be bad luck, but it also could be good luck. And so that's what you mean by a barbell. So you have to be prepared not just to buffer the downside, but to pounce on good luck if it happens. So it means keeping dry powder and having people, you know, who aren't just all busy all day with their regular job, but to actually the sort of dreamer types that can, can be nimble on behalf of the company, you know. I see a problem coming, so we need to do this, 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 and this, and you've got the capital there to do it. That's defensive. And so, you know, so the chief opportunity officer sits right beside the the chief risk officer, right? So that, you know, or they could be even the same person. I don't know. Point is that, that risk management becomes a profession, not just something you do in the boardroom. It, it's something you actually have people working on all the time in order to make sure that you can steward this company through this this foggy passage. Uh, that's kind of my, my sense of it. It's, 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 uh, it's more about uncertainty than about putting a pin in the map and saying, that's, I'm pretty sure that's where we're headed. When you're talking about kind of the, the challenges facing Canada in terms of uh, shrinking workforce and, and some of the other challenges, it's definitely our belief that offering a great pension can help you win that race for talent. And I think it's unfortunate that we've gone through this phase where it became fashionable. You know, I think boards basically talk management into going to DCs or, or eliminating pensions. I mean, we had a period where pensions were just all, all pensions were unaffordable, you know? And, uh, I think, uh, one of the, you know, well, I've, I've been in a D, uh, you know, a good pension my, most of my life. But one of the things that I know is that I, I paid for it. I mean, I know there was a contribution for my employer, but I paid a lot for it. So I think, Defined benefit kind of got a bad name through some of that post-2008 uh, kind of crisis period. But having it as an opt-in, at least, I think, is should be part of the part of our fabric. And because otherwise, 
you know, you know how hard it is to save for your whole life, right? Basically, people save in the form of real estate, and that's about all. Yeah, without a mandatory workplace pension that's doing that payroll deduction, yeah, we're seeing the numbers. And, you know, from a social policy perspective, as you mentioned earlier, governments will be very preoccupied with elder care. And if the pension plans that we have across the country aren't sufficient to provide retirement income for those seniors, uh, we're going to be in real trouble. That's one of the reasons that CAT established DB+. Our employees and our members are able to have a secure, predictable pension, whether they're private sector or public sector, regardless, right? Very important to have that. Well, it's good to hear that trend is coming. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic uh, about Canada's future? I am. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One is that this technology thing, I mean, every other big wave of technology has been huge in terms of living standards and the creating jobs we never heard of before and all that stuff. And and I said before, when companies get the, the mushrooms, it looks like they get all the money. But that's only phase one. What happens then is they spend the money. And when people spend the money, they don't spend the money like the people who invented the iPad didn't just buy iPads with the money, right? They bought everything with the money. What that does is it creates jobs everywhere in the economy. So if you're displaced by the technology, you don't necessarily have to learn how to write computer code to get up into the top part of the K. If there's going to be 20% more houses, well, you need 20% more furnace repair people or, you know, Technicians like that, that's it's a couple of months of side training, whatever, and then next thing you know, you're you're back in business. So that's important that there's this rising tide, uh, raises all boats kind of notion about all these things. So that's why I should be optimistic. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Star Trek, because I, I heard that you're a Star Trek fan. And the Star Trek that I grew up with was uh the next generation. And one yeah, one of the things that I would say defined that show for me was that it was a very optimistic version of the future. It was a future in which we treated each other well. We used technology to kind of further altruistic aims. And, and I, I look at you as a futurist, and I think, is this, is this someone who was inspired by that, that sort of Star Trek future? Well, I think you might be onto something, because uh, uh, for sure, I started watching it when it first arrived, you know, the first, the first Star Trek. Um, but I, I do think back to your original question is, should we be optimistic about Canada? I think the answer is yes, that, uh, that not only is the new technology going to favor us, but because we are blessed with the resources that they will still need when they're actually launching the Starship Enterprise. But in any case, uh, we, we, we should be optimistic. We have a right to be, but we will need to step up and be a leader. Uh, in order to do that. And I think the, the most important opportunity we face is to help fulfill the world's energy needs in a way that gets us to net zero. Well, William Shatner is my captain as well, and he's certainly uh, got quite the lasting legacy. As we're looking towards the future, what would you suggest businesses do today uh, to future-proof their companies? Well, I think the basics are to uh, to think of investment in risk management as a line on your on your 
on your income statement that uh, right now it's kind of a soft item. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like investing in your brand. When you invest in your brand, you can increase the value of the company. You do a good job of it. And I think investing in risk management will be the next intangible channel for companies to, uh, to strengthen, strengthen their companies in a sense to take uncertainty uh, and convert it to value for the shareholder. Um, and so, uh, whereas some companies will say, oh, I don't want to make that investment or, or do that project, that, that, that's too risky and the risk-adjusted rate of return is below my hurdle rate. Well, the next company that comes along and says, well, I've got a great team of risk managers. They're used to that kind of stuff. I'm going to do that project and I'm going to still make my hurdle rate because I'm going to bring risk management value to the equation and convert it to value for my shareholders. I think that'll be uh, an important element of, of success. And that means starting now, uh, creating more nimbleness in the company by investing in the people that that's their full-time job, uh, to be thinking about the next twist or turn the company has to cope with. And it sounds, it sounds like kind of overhead, you know? Uh, but but I think you have to understand it and then realize it's not actually overhead. It could, your survival could depend on that. Uh, the next black swan, whatever it is, could be the one that wipes out your company. Uh, what you want is the people that can say, that's okay, I can manage that. So every, every organization needs a Stephen is what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, something like that or, you know... Uh, Look, uh, companies uh, deal with uh, consulting shops all the time. Your audit firm has good, deep resources. And so you may be able to um, have, you know, once a, once a quarter or once a year uh, brainstorming with the board with some deep resources from, uh, from you know, consulting firm. Um, that's that's another, uh, another channel. But I do think you'll still need in, in-house resources, uh, who are you know clearly really well attuned to the company's nuances and its uh, opportunities and the resources that it has available because companies aren't all the same. Last question would be, what's next for you? I know I know you have a book on the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I have a book uh, that will come out in uh, February. It's uh, from Penguin Random House and. Uh, and it's called the next age of uncertainty. So you can see that the uncertainty word came up a lot in our conversation, and for for many of the reasons that I've you know I go into more depth in the book, uh, why I think that world uh, will look quite different from what we're used to. And it's it, it's a takeoff of John Kenneth Galbraith's book from almost fifty years ago, which was the age of uncertainty. And that's about the 1970s. When on the 1970s, things basically got stood on their head. And economics, as we know it today, had to be rewritten in the late 70s when I was in grad school. And so I think that that's the kind of tumult that we're headed for. And it's, uh, some people will oversimplify that and say it's all just because of OPEC. And that's not correct. <laughs> Many other things that were driving that bus. But I think, uh, anyway, in my case, uh, you know, I'm, I'm serving on... Uh, some really interesting uh, boards at Enbridge and CGI and uh, Omni Conversion Technologies. And I'm working at Osler, uh, the law firm, as a special advisor where I get to visit lots of boards of directors, and that's a lot of fun. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on. The two focal points for our conversation, demographics and technology, are issues with real implications for Canada. But what I really love is Stephen's optimism about our future. A key takeaway for me was when Stephen mentioned the shifting power dynamics between employers and employees and how this will be happening more and more. There's a growing need for organizations to really understand and prepare to meet the needs and demands of today's increasingly mobile employees. Exactly, Marnie. And that's something that we do at CAT. We've adapted our plan design to meet the challenges that employers face in offering a pension plan while still delivering the secure lifetime retirement income that employees want. For sure. And we'll continue to evolve as changing economic conditions impact the needs of Canadian employers and employees. It's more important than ever that we all work together for a resilient future. Thanks for joining us today. To delve deeper into Stephen's perspective, be sure to check out his upcoming book, The Next Age of Uncertainty. Thanks for joining us today on Contributors. We hope to see you again next time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Contributors on Apple Podcasts.